in a study that I did, again, with the National Institute of Health specific to COVID, we saw that we can detect subtle changes in your oxygen saturation, your respiratory rate, and your nocturnal heart rate uh, approximately three to five days prior to symptom onset, if there were even symptoms. We could even predict these changes in the absence of symptoms. So call it one disease, very specific. It, it changes, obviously. There's a lot of variability. The idea is typically your physiology is going to respond several days prior to you actually experiencing something. Life is an endless stream of challenges, but no worries. Manoj is bringing the world's best minds right here for you. My gosh, Manoj, you just blew my mind. Thank you, universe. Manoj, thank you. I'm so grateful. Makes me feel a little bit better. Thank you. Bootstrapping Your Dreams is here to give you what you need to succeed. Hello and welcome to this new episode of Bootstrapping Your Dreams show. I'm your host, Manoj Agarwal, and today we'll be talking with Kevin Longoria. So Kevin is doing some amazing things in the field of health tech, and uh, he's very passionate. And uh, we ran into each other uh, at, at uh, uh, eLiances, which is an entrepreneurial community, and I just loved what Kevin is doing. So Kevin, uh, welcome to the podcast. I'd love for you to share a few, uh, uh, you know, a li- little bit about what you are doing, who you are, how did you get here, uh, just the the history of uh, you know your life and your business yeah absolutely and again you know thank you for having me on today i'm kevin longoria ceo and founder here at rpm1 by education i'm a clinical physiologist and more of a self-trained data scientist i've been working in the medical device industry for about five years now primarily in signal processing so i get to sit in the dark room basically study all the raw signals that are generated from things like wearable devices create the nice derived metrics that everybody likes to see, and then ultimately take those through the FDA clearance process. Uh, last few years or so, I've been working a little bit more on the, the predictive side of things. So looking at this you know, massive amount of longitudinal data, how do we get away from people staring at a screen, trying to make sense of it to actually delivering clinical utility and other insights out of the data as well. Um, RPM1 kind of stemmed out of a project I worked on two years ago at the National Institute on Minority Health and Health Disparities. In the heart of COVID, you know, some of the greatest minds in the world sitting at a table and how do we address health inequity, right? COVID, minority groups, and so on that were really affected. And pretty unanimously, we say it's, it's technology, right? It's going to be wearables and it's going to be so on. But, you know, as we are very good in healthcare, we're just talking about problems, you know, mm. high costs and compliance and racial bias and data collection methodology, interoperability, clinical staffing. You know, I can go down the list and all too often the conversation ends at the problem, um, I wanted to build a business model that that kind of full circle was a solution to that. Um, in a nutshell, we provide no-cost medical devices, clinical staffing uh, to medically underserved patients and work on a value-based model. So I can get a little long-winded. I'll leave it uh, there for now. No, that, that's, uh, that's amazing. So, uh, you know, I have worked in the healthcare technology sector for a long time, and I've, I've seen the transition happen from... Uh, in the early 2000s when things were very uh, archaic backwards uh, people had um, a, a, you know a little access to um, technology and data and even even the systems they had they were um, very outdated and now we are in 2022 where um, you know uh, you are talking about giving these devices to people across the world, everywhere, and giving these devices for free. And that's a huge transition. But, you know, coming back to this, uh, 
the business like how do you commercially make it viable as you 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 said at the end like you know value based um economy but help us understand you know how do you do that for free and still uh build a sustainable business out of it yeah so call it uh lucky for us but unfortunate but there there's so much waste 320 billion dollars in completely avoidable spending just simply due to health inequity this has a lot to do with misdiagnoses delays in care lack of access to high quality healthcare right this is what digital health has really promised kind of you know shortening that gap but quickly you realize that the people that need it the most are the the least accessible to it whether that be cost or other reasons so what we look at here is basically providing the upfront service at no cost so instead of saying buy our wearable device for 500 or 1000 dollars which is just a major barrier we can provide that at no cost and the way we primarily operate is by decreasing that waste right early intervention allows us to decrease cost of care so maybe what would have resulted in an emergency room visit 5 to 7 days down the road which typically 8800 upwards of tens of thousands mm-hmm. we may be able to redirect that care and basically prevent that situation for an 88 primary care visit mm-hmm. now so the idea is shared savings we deliver savings and we take a portion of that um you know to align the interests of the health systems as well they're they're essentially taking no risk they only pay us if we in fact deliver value to them so their guard is down and it has allowed us to uh, in a short period of time uh, lend some good contracts with some major health systems that's awesome and so um how do you measure all this like you know again uh, the idea of using technology artificial intelligence data to provide personalized healthcare to to as you said like to prevent something uh, proactively rather than react to it which is way more costly and that's how the the whole system is set up right now but then um when you start to prevent these diseases how do you how do you demonstrate that you know this system is actually doing that and what is the monetary value as as you the example that you gave 88 versus you know 8000 plus dollars how do you how do you measure that effectiveness Yeah so there's a lot of the you know historical data uh, a lot of the times we'll work with like an ACO or a health system and they'll give us their high utilizers their most expensive patients so not on a per capita basis but specifically this group of 10,000 patients costs us 15 million dollars per year and we're mm. very inclined to decrease that so we're taking this little cohort and we're saying we're going to follow them for the next 1 to 3 years and we're going to use that benchmark they cost you 15 million if next year they cost you 5 well we saved you 10 and we we get to monetize a portion of that savings <laughs> so that's it kind of in in a nutshell um it's hard on a you know per person basis to say well they used healthcare a lot last year so they must next year this health doesn't quite work that way but it's more at the the group or cohort level yeah yeah that is uh, that's a a brilliant uh, way to uh, to do this um now how uh, let's dive a little bit into the technology side of things so uh you are doing some unique things even with your variables like uh, from what we discussed like they have um capabilities to record many many different uh, uh sort of signals or statistics if you will or uh, so so can you help us understand like how is your technology uh different or what is what is unique about it yeah so the the first thing that i really wanted to address was racial bias and how data is actually collected uh you know some of the viewers may have heard of the New England Journal of Medicine article about 2 years ago and it was racial bias in pulse oximetry 
This included the fingertip devices that were also common, uh, you know, with especially in COVID to measure pulse ox. And they found simply that melanin content or skin tone, your skin color, uh, significantly impacted the data reliability. Well, you and I know, you know, a lot of people would say, well, you know, it's just not reliable. We, we know that's a physics problem. It's not a skin tone problem, right? You need to figure out how to account for that. So we worked very difficult. We studied, uh, you know, Fitzpatrick score one through six, which is a scale for different skin tones and basically figured out, you know, whether you're adapting firmware, how the light sensors are actually firing or how you kind of have better filters in your algorithms to basically make the data collection non-biased. Um, I'm not the smartest guy in the world. I probably shouldn't have been the one to try and figure that out, but ultimately we did, right? We, we cared enough to really put in the time and the effort. Um, right now we're in the regulatory process because we're able to now get a cleaner signal on all of these individuals, regardless of skin tone, um, a single wrist-worn device that once again is no cost, we're able to very reliably do heart rate, heart rate variability, oxygen saturation, respiratory rate, but also more novel things like blood pressure, skin and core temperature in addition to sleep and activity and all of the others. But the idea first was how do we get the most reliable data regardless of, you know, physiologic factors. So that's what we'd really focused on. Again, got to be careful with our claims, but in things like early testing um, through a single wrist-worn device, we can do your blood pressure every five minutes within plus or minus three MMHGs. This is well within FDA regulations. So getting away from having to have a dedicated cost, you know, pretty expensive blood pressure cuff that is a nightmare to get people to actually put on their arm and use. You give them a nice wearable that, oh, they can check their text messages on and stuff too. So another reason to wear it, that's passively collecting all of this data. Nice, nice. So um, that seems like humongous amount of data. Uh, you know, when we talk about uh, so many readings uh, so frequently just for one patient and then, then we extrapolate it to like hundreds of thousands of patients. Um, so how do you, how do you, collect all that data? How do you make sense of that data? It seems, you know, obviously I understand uh, the technology, yeah. you know, I, I'm a, I'm a data scientist as well, but I'd like you to share your perspective um, with the audience, um, considering that many of uh, the uh, people in the audience may not be uh, technical, um, technical in nature. So like in simple language, how do you manage or how do you make sense of all this? Yeah, um, you know, it gets complex. We'll kind of hone in on one of the models here. And it's a, it's baseline adjusted variance, right? So the, to make that very simple, um, if we were to show up to a hospital, they take your, your resting heart rate, they say anything between 60 to 100 is considered normal, right? That's a huge range. I'm a very healthy individual. My resting heart rate is about 50.2 beats per minute, plus or minus 1.5. So I'm making it complicated again but we're understanding my actual normal physiologic set point. And then we're also accounting for some day-to-day -day variance because it's not a, a static number, right? So we're gonna say for Kevin, we'll use round numbers, 50 plus or minus two is completely normal. As soon as I start to go above or below that, we start to apply risk on a, on a non-zero scale, right? So it's gonna say, well, I know Kevin's at rest right now. You know, I'm, I'm, I have an accelerometer on my wrist, so I'm not exercising. Why is his heart rate 65? So it starts to then say, there may be something going on and it looks for other contextual information. I'll say, well, if he's very stressed, his blood pressure is probably elevated as well, right? So we're basically referencing a physiologic value right now compared to my own set points. So we're getting away from what's called universal binning and saying 60 to 100 is normal and it's what's normal for Kevin. So we basically apply a risk score metric by metric. So heart rate gets a risk and oxygen saturation gets a risk. 
we then aggregate this into a collated risk score. And when you start to uh, basically cross certain thresholds, that's where these uh, event triggers start to happen, where alerts start to, to be propagated. A uh, big portion of our model is who should you actually alert, right? Uh, a lot of the wearables right now would alert the, the patient or the consumer, right? Kind of the Apple Watch effect, your, your heart rate's abnormal. Well, that's just going to worry me more. Yeah. Um, our business model is to get that data to somebody that's qualified to actually interpret it, in this case, a qualified healthcare professional. And then they get to basically source all of the context, both out of your medical record, but also this data. And that's where they're going to decide whether intervention is required or not. Nice, nice. And so that's that's um, almost like uh, having a personalized doctor sort of following you around all the time. Um, now, uh, if just so that people can understand, like, how does the body work? Like, do you, are you utilizing the data? Are you able to predict something bad is going to happen? If so, you know, how, how, um, how much sooner in the process you can detect that? So, you know, for example, if somebody is at a risk of um, heart disease or, you know, heart, uh, heart attack or something along those lines, um, you know, I'm, 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 just using uh, a common example, but you may have some specific examples that you can share. How much sooner you can detect that and intervene? Yeah, yeah. So the working concept here is that changes in your physiology will precede symptoms and symptoms will precede disasters or events, right? And so we're trying to pick things up at the earliest state possible. Um, in a study that I did, again, with the National Institute of Health specific to COVID, we saw that we can detect subtle changes in your oxygen saturation, your respiratory rate, and your nocturnal heart rate uh, approximately three to five days prior to symptom onset, if there were even symptoms. We could even predict these changes in the absence of symptoms. So call it one disease, very specific. It, it changes, obviously. There's a lot of variability. The idea is typically your physiology is going to respond several days prior to you actually experiencing something. Your physiology is changing, changing, and that's what causes the symptom. But there was some sort of sign and symptom um, sign in your physiology that we may have been able to detect before. So where we're at today, a lot of it is non-specific, right? We cannot say it's not a diagnostic tool; it's a screening tool. It's saying there's something abnormal going on here. Let's get you to the doctor that can actually figure out what's going on. But this wearable is not saying you know you're going to have a fall in ten days or something like that. It's you know, things are looking a little abnormal. Let's get you to care a little bit sooner than you may have otherwise. Got it, got it. And then um, on the flip side, uh, do you think the physicians are equipped to handle this kind of information? Do they know what all these signals mean? Um, I mean, uh, like there are two sides of this equation, right? We are able to detect all this now, but um, it seems like this is this is brand new information that has not been available to the physicians community. So how, how are they dealing with it? Are they able to like um, comprehend it fully and then make sense of it? Yeah, you, you are absolutely correct. It's, you know, from two blood pressure recordings per year to one every five minutes. It's a, it's a bit overwhelming. Um, that's why we've actually decided to control the clinical staffing. So a lot of similar companies call them would say, you know, you already have doctors, let's use your doctors we say we need specialized training. So we actually have the whole course where we certify the, the practitioners. They don't necessarily need to be data scientists, but they need to understand, you know, why these triggers are being delivered, how to go source the right contextual information. So let me, it's probably gonna get confusing. So let me take a step back and just say, the 
we have a digital triage. So something's going wrong. We basically send an alert to a queue that they're used to, and it's prioritizing. This is your highest risk patient down to your lowest. We're not saying anything's wrong. We're just saying based on our algorithms, this is the one you want to look at first. Before we would even get to presenting them, you know, physiologic data, we source contextual information from the EHR. So how old are they? What's their medical history? What's the notes from their most recent discharge? Allergies? Are they picking up their medications regularly that they're prescribed? So they're building context. Like what may take 12 to 15 clicks in an EHR, we're trying to get down to about two or three. So in about a matter of a minute, what's the general health status of this patient, right? Because it's different if you have a history of myocardial infarctions versus you're a healthy guy like me, right? So like, okay. And then we start to show the, the physiologic data. We'll say oxygen saturation is 92%. The trailing seven-day baseline is 98, right? So there's not a lot of training there. As long as you're a healthcare professional, you understand, well, 92 is not very good, but it's worse if it's normally 98, right? Compared to somebody that maybe has COPD and sits at 93, they're giving them the issue and the magnitude. So this is kind of the idea is we're, we're providing as much contextual information that, that helps you understand the data so you can understand the severity. That's amazing. Um, and so, uh, you know, again, um, as, as you're describing it, it almost seems like uh, even when you're building the system, you need uh, a lot of expertise from different fields, like, you know, uh, hardware to collect the signals, uh, you know, software and, and data scientists to sort of, you know, store the data or build these algorithms. And more importantly, also, um, you know, expertise from the healthcare community who will inform you, you know, what, what exactly are you looking for in the signal and, and sort of transfer it over to the other physicians who will make use of that information. So how are you able to put together this team of experts from different fields? Yeah, a, a lot of collaboration. Um, you know, I've been in the industry long enough to have, I've met some very great people, right? Um, my, my business partner, co-founder, he's the expert in international manufacturing. Mm -hmm. So when it came down to a business model where, man, we have to be able to give these away for free, well, device costs became very important, but also quality of sensors. Mm -hmm. So he handles a lot of things on the hardware side. I'm signal processing. Um, when it came to the software itself, um, that's where we brought in some expertise. So we started working with an amazing company called Centric. Um, the principal architect there is the former director of telemetry for NASA. So when it comes to you know, the telemetry side of things, storing data, making sure it's secure, how to you know basically create the right event-driven platform, he was the expert there. Clinical staffing is probably the, the most difficult because it's the most manual side of it. But ultimately, you, you learn clinical professionals tend to have free time. And that's a weird thing to say. But uh, most nurses, for example, are working three twelves at the hospital. They have four days off. A lot of them are driving for Uber Eats on the side. So the basic concept there was would they rather make more money and keep helping patients in their off time as opposed. So that's been more of a manual effort. But we've had a lot of success getting the, the right skilled professionals on, on board as well. Mm, so sorry, awesome. I know that was a little, little scattered, but <laughs> no, no, it, uh, it, it's amazing uh, what you have been able to do. Like because um, hiring for one kind of expertise is difficult enough for uh, you know founders and entrepreneurs, and you are bringing in expertise from multiple fields, which is uh, just uh, very admirable. You are listening to Bootstrapping Your Dreams show with Manu Jagarwal. Businesses face numerous challenges like finding the right product market fit, determining the market size, implementing a winning go-to-market strategy, crafting customer-centric USP, 
competitive analysis, looking for funding, building up cash flow and profitability. We have made a lot of free resources available to the entrepreneurial community, including this podcast. podcast. We invite you to check out our websites and follow us on social channels. The links are in the show notes. We hope you find the resources useful and utilize them to grow grow your business. We also have some programs for entrepreneurs. If you find our content useful, then you will definitely find the programs outstanding. So do check them out. Um, one one point you brought up was security and privacy. Like, like a lot of people, you know, when when I speak with people about data science, collecting data, one thing always that comes up is okay, you know, how are you gonna make sure my data is private and secure? Um, and a lot of people, uh, in my observation. People who bring up these um, these uh, concerns, they don't necessarily have a lot of background in what security and privacy truly means. Um, what I found is they are just piggybacking off of you know the the general narrative that is happening in 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 the mainstream media without understanding you know what exactly privacy security means. But I'd like to get your take on it. Like, how do you how do you see privacy and security in in the healthcare domain and how do you how does your company address it yeah in the, in the domain i would say a lot of room for improvement right mm-hmm. hipaa is like a guideline right and it's a self-certification as well so it's really not that difficult for people to be hipaa compliant and still really not take care of the data the way they should um this is something we realized early on and i'm far from the you know cybersecurity expert by any means but our biggest problem is building trust in the communities we want to serve, right? Oh, yeah. We can understand that the health and equity community has frankly been let down by the healthcare system. And somebody like myself coming in and saying, I'll take this gadget. And, you know, what they immediately go to, well, what's, what's the, well, what's going on behind the scenes? What are they going to do with my data? So we really have tried to build the best data architecture for security and risk mitigation and so on, because it's, you know, any company is one breach away from losing all your credibility. So we yeah. really want to make sure we are protecting it to the, the best. And HIPAA, we have to be, but we want to be, you know, well above and beyond that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, uh, now extrapolating this uh, to where we are. How, how old is your company, by the way? I, I, um, uh, how long you've been on this? We've actually only incorporated uh, about five months ago. So I've been doing oh. this for, for several years, but this company is relatively fresh. Nice, nice. So what are your plans for this company? Let's say, you know, in five years uh, in the future, what is your vision, how this technology and your inventions uh, will change uh, the nature of healthcare? Yeah, you know, um, hardware is hard. So ultimately, one thing I would love to get out of would be the hardware game itself. I would love to prove to other hardware manufacturers that there's a more socioeconomically viable way of getting your hardware to market. And that's through no upfront cost is basically, you know, kind of like the shared savings or reimbursement type models there. So if I, if I could get a, I won't name anybody, but the, the big players, right? They already have millions of watches on people. If I could get them to, you know, get through the FDA clearance process and learn that it's better to give their device away for free, I will never manufacture a device again. So that, that's, mm-hmm. that's goal number one. Um, but really, I'd love to just see globally health and equity start to be solved through, through our type of technology. So we have the goals here. Um, HRSA designates medically underserved areas. There's no shortage of them, about 3,500 in our country. So just one at a time, start picking away there. International is the next goal. 
um, the behind the scenes, what people don't really know about our company, but it's, it's the IP is the telemetry platform, right? Mm -hmm. it, it has really nothing to do with healthcare, but this is our first mission. Um, interestingly enough, we already have a proof of concept study in South Africa that we're working on that's in the agriculture industry. So we're just talking about different sensors, different data, but what you do is essentially the same, right? You, you structure it properly for AI and ML and perhaps instead of decision support, which is what we do in, in healthcare, um, you go more towards automation. So humidity and temperature sensor, we're predicting vapor pressure deficit in mold and in plants. Well, now we can actually change a watering system and, you know, shading over a plant or something like that, as opposed to having to tell a human to do it. So I think the goal would be to go solve, you know, solve is a big word, go help healthcare, and then see where we can make an impact in, in other sides of you know, humanity, because food supply chain is, is a big problem as well. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting. I'll, um, I think uh, that description was quite uh, a bit technical. So let's try to simplify a little bit uh, for people to understand. So when you say telemetry, it's more like you're you're processing the signals and you're looking at the, the, the valleys and peaks of the graph uh, in the data. And those peaks and valleys, they, they tell you that there is some abnormal or exceptional thing happening um, and that can be applied to humans with diseases or plants for uh, you know better crops and many other uh, natural phenomena is that is that correct understanding yeah yeah great simple explanation sorry oh, no. i get a little technical <laughs> no no of course of course um, all right so um now let's uh, switch gears and let's talk about you in fact i sh I, I, sh I should have done this earlier what drives you? How did you get into this? What is your story? Yeah, so um, I was really dedicated during school. I'm the first in my family with a college degree. And so I was full on nerd in, in college, right? I went to ASU and I pretended that I wasn't there, but I, I really dedicated myself to schooling. Ultimately, I wanted to get into medical school. I did extremely well in the MCATs. I got into like three of the top five schools that I wanted to, but I, I decided to take a gap year. Um, pretty quickly, I realized I was too broke to travel and my brain wasn't the type that's going to let me relax for a year. Um, I, I had the opportunity to get into the entrepreneurial world. So kind of a, a previous mentor of mine wanted to start a company, you know, asked me for my ideas and we decided to start a mobile cardiopulmonary exercise testing. So for those that aren't familiar, it's like an exercise test that's really a better predictor of all cause mortality than your family history and smoking habits and your diagnoses and so on. It's how well you can consume oxygen during a graded exercise test. Amazing test, quickly learned 0% scalable, right? You're taking expensive equipment, you're bringing it to doctor's offices, relying on humans and stuff a little bit too much. So business failed. Um, but I got struck pretty hard by the entrepreneurial bug, right? So mm -hmm. this kind of led to another company um, where I was primarily focusing on neuromuscular research. Um, Interesting story there, but we took on some some athletic case studies, um, including this one gentleman, Henry Cejudo. Um, the first time I'd ever had any kind of dealings in the, the sports world, um, he was going against who was considered the great, greatest fighter of all time. And we used data to, to basically help him win. And next thing you know, another world championship, another one. We, we won six world championships in an eight-month period, which was cool, right? I was on Joe Rogan, and I was traveling the world and everything. Um, but it quickly became an athletic training company, right? 
shareholders see success, like, all right, we're switching gears here. So that was really cool, but I, I did not set out to make athletes a few percent better. Very cool, very glorious you know, job, but I am a, a clinician, right? So that's where I really got more into the medical device signal processing side of things. I always kind of thought I was going to circle back to medical school, but where I'm at today, I really feel like I can make a greater impact from the, from the outside, right? And that's, mm. I think, kind of been reaffirmed a few times throughout my career as well. It's kind of difficult from the end. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's a that's an amazing story. Um, so um, uh, I didn't even realize that uh, you had um, this background with sports and and all that. That's amazing. But it goes to really, you know, focus uh, light on how important uh, data is now, because I think um, uh, you know uh, th- there is uh, there is th- this thing that I keep telling people, you know, data is the new oil, data is the new gold. Um, but it's very difficult to explain without uh, using these specific examples that you just shared, that if you can utilize data to detect disease, to defeat an opponent who's, you know, and become a world champion, that's that's a big deal. Um, so um, in, 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 in your opinion, once again, uh, when we talk about data, when we talk about AI, when we talk about these technologies, a lot of people are scared. A lot of people, you know, they watch Hollywood movies. They say, hey, AI is going to take over the world. You know, even um, even people like Elon Musk say, hey, you know, we need to be beware of uh, AI and what is happening. So what are your views around it, like at the macro level, at the bigger level? How is How are these technologies going to change our world? And should we be concerned? Yeah, I, I think of everything in kind of the the equity, you know, lens here. So when we think, well, again, we'll, we'll circle back to healthcare. Healthcare is expensive and it's inaccessible. Why? Because it's inefficient. Well, technology makes things efficient, right? So you almost need to adopt technology to address the issues in you know cost and inaccessibility. So where I'm at today, I definitely, you know, I've seen Terminator, I get all of that type of stuff. Mm-hmm. But today it's about leveraging technology to kind of level the playing field, in my opinion, right? And this to me, it's mostly about decision support. A lot of people think about taking the human out of the equation, as I think you and I know, you know, let, let the technology do the tedious stuff that nobody else wants to do and to kind of standardize it as well. You're removing a lot of opinions and everything out of it when it's subjective data. Mm-hmm. So I really see as let let data basically do the, the things that we can't do, right? It, nobody could look at a blood pressure recording coming in every five minutes, right? That's that's the technology, but the human still needs to know how to intervene upon it. And, mm-hmm. you know, you shouldn't have the blind blind trust in the data either. And that's why it's exceptionally important for the, the human to be involved. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's, that's, uh, that's true. Um, and then, you know, I, I do want to specifically talk to you about this, like uh, this notion that if we use technology too much, if, uh, you know, the AI takes over, we are going to have huge job losses and, you know, technology is going to replace human beings. How do you address that issue? Um, I think, well, we're, we're never, at least in, in healthcare, trying to replace the human being. I think we're, we're way too far out from that. But I really think as that just allows us to dedicate more resources to things like vocational training, right? Mm-hmm. We have a major shortage of doctors and qualified healthcare professionals. 
So maybe if we didn't need so many people doing other jobs, now we have more resources to dedicate them to, you know, jobs that are going to be here long, true, tried and tested, right? I think you and I both know, you know, you can replace cashiers with technology, but you cannot replace doctors. So maybe we can just, as a society, make sure that we're dedicating resources to making more doctors. You know, that's, Mm -hmm. that's kind of my opinion towards it, just allocation of resources. Yeah. So uh, again, just to summarize it, the way that uh, I I heard it, I understood it, and which I agree with your opinion is that as technology sort of takes over some of the mundane and repetitive tasks, as a society, we will have more resources to dedicate to uplift the the whole society, and and you know people who are doing the repetitive jobs will have the opportunity to sort of upgrade to the higher level of careers. Is that is that how absolutely? Yeah. Absolutely. It may be a little optimistic, but call me an optimist. No, no, I, I, I agree with you. And I uh, share that optimism. I, I think I think we need uh, more of these opinions so that people can really see the other side of uh, technology, not just the doom and gloom uh, of what the media is, is going to show anyways, because that's their job. Um, so this this is great. Uh, you know, I'm so uh, glad that these innovations are happening and affecting people uh, around the world. Um, now, uh, coming back to you, like, uh, what are some of the lessons you have learned through this uh, journey? You know, um, you said scaling was one because the, you know when when the business fails, it actually teaches us a huge lesson as well. So, um, what are some of those lessons that you have learned in your entrepreneurial journey, maybe in this company or the previous companies that you have launched? You know, a, a big one, I guess, comes down to you know the don't rely too heavily on like the, the expert opinion side of things. I've had a lot of mentors and people that I've looked up to in the past and they, they tell you a lot of reasons why you can't do something. Right. And and I'm a major believer in it's, it's impossible until it's not, Um, you know, sidetrack. I did uh, led the medical team for a gentleman that ran 101 consecutive Ironmans, right? This Mm. is a 26.2 mile run, 2.4 mile swim, 112 mile bike each and every day for 101 consecutive days. Wow. I took the case on absolutely saying this guy's going to fail. And when he fails, I want all of his data. I want to really see what overtraining looks like at the highest level. Right. Um, and, and the guy blew me away. He, he absolutely accomplished it. It's a Guinness world record. There's a lot of you know documentaries and stuff being made on him. And to me, it just like, if, if, if he would have believed people, he never would have set out to do it. Right. Mm-hmm. People told me, well, you can't make a device and give it away for free. I wouldn't be doing it. Mm-hmm. So I, I've learned a lot, you know, the, the people that you put on the, the highest pedestals and everything, they, they, sometimes they're just going to say it's a bad idea, but if you believe in it enough, it's worth a shot, right? That, that's mm-hmm. how we, we progress. So that's a big one um, for the fellow entrepreneurs out there as well. You know, get everything in writing. So I've been, <laughs> I've been on the yeah. other end of the, the bad contracts and stuff a few times as well. So that, that's a big one that I've learned as an entrepreneur. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, these are important lessons, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you, you mentioned uh, mentors. Um, so, who uh, who are your mentors how what kind of impact did they have on you and your business yeah i would say you know one of my biggest ones is for the the company that turned into kind of the, the athletic training company not a gentleman with a healthcare background you know anything like that um what i really learned from him is is how to treat people properly mm-hmm. right i've been part of a lot of organizations some you know much more successful than this specific company but he, he built a culture where everybody in that company would do anything for him at any time. And, and because we knew vice versa as well. 
So from a pure leadership perspective, you know, Kareem Amin, if you're listening, like that, that was the guy that I took a lot from, um, from, I guess the other side of mentorship, it's, it's very diffused, right? I've picked up a little bit here and there from a lot of people that I, I highly respect, but I, on the drop of a hat, can't, can't name a single one that I would say yeah, like yeah. I modeled my career after. <laughs> no, that's great. Thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah. I mean, leadership and, and taking it off, uh, uh, people is, is a skill that is very, very valuable. And unfortunately, not a lot of us sort of uh, are are given that skill uh, during our education. So I had to learn it. Uh, and, I, you know, it's a lifelong process. So I'm still learning. But that's a very important one. Thanks for sharing. Now, uh, this has been an amazing conversation. Thank you uh, for what you're doing. It, it's, uh, it's changing, you know, uh, breaking new ground, changing a huge industry. So um, uh, that's great and how you know how what is it that you want from the community you how do you um uh what what is what are the resources what are the what are the skills what kind of people are you looking for to join you in your mission yeah we we need a lot of qualified healthcare professionals of, of all levels so you know anybody that's that's looking to come join the mission here is more than welcome to reach out to us uh to me that the biggest thing is just letting people know that we exist, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's easy again to be like health inequity is a problem and leave it there. there. There's companies like us and we're not the only one that are actively trying to, to solve the problem, right? Mm-hmm. And, and you can put all human factors aside, right? Hundreds of thousands of preventable deaths, but the socioeconomic burden is real. 320 mm-hmm. billion today, it's gonna hit a trillion by 2040 if we do nothing. If you care about you know, your, your next generation being able to afford healthcare, we need to start addressing health inequities growing at a higher CAGR than healthcare expenditure in general. So know that we exist, you know, next time doctor says something, say, oh, what about our PM1, right? We, they have this amazing wearable technology. So yeah, I think that's it. It's, it's about partnerships, collaboration, and you know, just getting the word out there. Yeah, yeah, great. And how can people get in touch with you? I'm a little uh, social media illiterate, but I, I am on LinkedIn and uh, Facebook, um, RPM-1. So RPM-ONE, you can find us on most of the, the socials there or reach out to me directly. More than happy to <laughs> share my contact info. Awesome. Great. We'll put those links in the show notes. Thank you so much. Cool. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Great topic of the day. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Thanks for tuning in to Bootstrapping Your Dream. Bootstrapping Your Dream. We bring you life-changing insights about starting and growing your business, making your life and family happy. Given the fact that you listened to the whole episode, we know you are an awesome fan. Awesome fan. So why not help us spread the message? Please share the podcast with others who can benefit from it. And if you are feeling extra generous, leave a review on iTunes or any other platform where you are listening to the podcast.